Okay, so we remember, and, and this is old hat for some of you who have been through the evening service with me. Um, the name means servant or worshiper of the Lord, and most of his ministry was dedicated mostly to Edom or Judah, and uh, Judah is centered towards the end of the book, and we'll talk about that. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament, and it also is never quoted in the New Testament. Hence, because it's the shortest, and it's the only Old Testament book that's one chapter long, it became part of the Post-it Note series. So, Post-it Note series, that's what I called this last series, the Post-it Notes from Scripture, something really short and easy to read. Um, so, outline, sorry, I'm losing my voice with this Montgomery cold. Um, <clears throat> So the outline, Edom's punishment, one through nine, and this is sort of how we'll break up going through it. Edom's crimes, uh, day of the Lord, and the restoration of Israel, which actually ties a little bit back into, oh, you moved. You were back there. (laughs) I said Montgomery cold, and I went, oh, he's left. I didn't mean to upset his feelings, but you're up here now. Um the restoration of Israel, we t- and it fits in nicely because we'll talk about that. And it ties in with what we talked about, prophecy. Uh, so the historical purpose of the book was written to pronounce doom on Edom and to predict the restoration of Judah. So some of the issues in regards to what we're looking at. Uh, oh, some view, one of the issues with the book is when some people read it, they really view it as a hate message from from. Um, Obadiah to Edom, like he's he's got something against them, when in reality, it's a prophecy from God. And if somebody says, oh, it's just a hate message, well, you can answer them by simply saying, no, the book is completely ethical, and it's in accordance to the Abrahamic covenant. So it doesn't guide or doesn't go off the rails in any way. So from Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was a promise made way back then. And so when Obadiah wrote, it was still valid. And that's simply what it was following. That's not me. But I'm going to put mine on mute. That reminded me. You remember one of the first times I was here teaching an evening service, I forgot to put my phone on mute and I get notifications for the Blue Jays. So I could hear my phone go ding, ding, every time the Jays scored. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, I don't want to go up and admit that it's mine. I would now, but I wouldn't then. I was trying to impress you. So Edom's punishment. And what we have here is, I've got the scripture on the, on the screen for you. What we have here is the vision of Obadiah. So it introduced us to who the author was. And, and a lot of... I think I say this in here. There's a lot of parallel between Obadiah and Jeremiah. And I take the view that Obadiah was written first. That Obadiah is not copying uh, Jeremiah, but they're written a different order. So in Jeremiah 49.1, we read this. I've heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. And we can read that when we go over to uh, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God of, uh, Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us, or rise up, 
Let us rise up against her for battle. <coughs> so why? You can look over to Psalm 137. 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So when we read Edom, you can also read in that Esau, right? That's where they came from. The Edenites were the descendants of Esau. So in some translations, they flip-flop between Edom and Esau. So here we have, I want to give you a quote from Dr. Carl Armadig. The dual thrust of verse 1 indicates two levels at which human history moves. The Lord is the ultimate mover, but there is also an international political alliance motivated only by callous self-seeking men. And we'll come to that in verses 5 through 7. Even nations, even nations raised up by such base motives serve the overriding purposes of God who sovereignly shapes human affairs through countless envoys of his own. So what he's saying here is that, <clears throat> and this is hard for us to understand sometimes, when we look at human history, it's made up of decisions and alliances and different things happen as we move through human history. And within that, we are not robots. We are responsible for our choices and we're responsible for the decisions, decisions we make. But also within this movement of human history, as we go down through time, also within that movement of history is God's sovereign hand. The only problem is this. I can't explain it to you. I wish I could. I wish I could take you down and go, this is how it all works. But somehow from the beginning of time with an Adam and Eve, God was moving in lives and in people and people were making decisions along the way to which they will be held culpable to. They will have to give an account for. But yet God still moves within the midst to make sure that his purposes are accomplished. How? I couldn't tell you. And if you can tell, I'll give you the mic right now if you know the answer to that question. Because you either fall into one or two camps, and I think they err. One camp would be way down here where you must have God is off in the distance and he really doesn't have his hands on anything and it, you know, it just goes along. And I don't think that's right because quite clear scripture teaches that we have a sovereign God. But way down on this side of the spectrum, you get what I call a deterministic um, theology, which would say if I get out of my bed in the middle of the night and stub my toe, God ordained that in time past, I was going to stub my toe. Well, where's my culpability come in? for being the dummy that didn't turn the light on to see where he was walking in the middle of the night. And I don't know how to tell you the two. And, and a lot of people, and this is why I think some people, and I said it this morning, some people don't pray because they have this deterministic view that, well, why bother praying? God's got it all decided. It's not going to make any difference. Da, da. But we went through this morning that God wants us to pray for provision. 
when we talk about God answering prayer, it's, and I, I can't tell you, but I can tell you this, that those two truths, well, in our minds, are so hard to knit together. In the mind of God, he's got it all figured out. And that's what we have to rest in. God's got it. We won't have to figure out every little detail. We can rest in the fact that there's a God that cared for us, set his love upon us. He is sovereign over all. Why he chooses to heal some and not others, I couldn't tell you. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he's sovereign. And that's what we rest in. That he's sovereign and that in the end, who told me this joke about eschatology? That they're a a pan-millennial or something like that. It's all going to pan out in the end. Somebody here told me that. Oh, Graham's resting his hand up. Well, that's what's going to happen with all this. God's got it all figured out. We just need to trust and obey. So there is that level that God is behind all this and will use it. So, the central motif of um, Obadiah in verses 2 through 9 is really Edom's humiliation. So, Edom, and we'll talk about this in a second. I've got to get the right one. No, I can't point at that one. I have to go like this. Edom's down here. Very hilly country. So, it's right down here. Moab, Beersheba, Jerusalem. So all countries you'll be familiar with. But that's the central motif of the, of the two through nine is the humiliation of Edom. So starting in verse two, behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. I feel like God to say this to you. The pride, and that's one of the key words here, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Okay, so you catch those two? So this, again, there are a couple of pictures from Eden. This one talks about dwelling in the cleft of the rock. Eden was in a high territory. Um... A lot of mountains, uh, even its capital and that, were up in a plateau. Uh, so they were surrounded by a lot of ja- jagged mountains and a um, huge deep wadi at one end. Everybody you know what a wadi is? Where the river would run through in the rainy season? Like a canyon almost. Canyon almost. Um, so that's what they had. So because of that, there was this arrogancy. There was this pride And it deceived them. We live in these cleft of the rock. We're kind of safe. Nobody can get to us. We can see there before they're coming. We live up on a plateau. We get water. We have food we can grow. Um, Who's going to bring us down? We're at the top of our game. No one's going to touch us. That's exactly what they thought. So you can see it right there. So their pride insolence, presumptuous, arrogance. That was one of their issues. My question to you tonight, has mankind changed? Talked a little bit about this this morning. 
pride and arrogance. It, it's loud mouth boasting. And we think we're at the top of our game. You listen to any political leader. There isn't one country that's not perfect according to their president or prime minister. Everything's just right. So, the other thing I think we need to remember, that this, this pridefulness isn't a modern problem. So there's a lot of times when people look at Scripture and they say, oh, you believe in that ancient old book. Well, yeah, I do. But that ancient old book talks about mankind that may have changed when it comes to technology. So we have our smartphones and we have our computers and we have our tractors that we can listen to the radio and they can drive and plant themselves almost as they go by GPS and everything like that. We can take a man to the moon. We can get from here to Europe in two hours. But has it really changed the heart of man? No. Now, some of you older than me, since I'm so young, how many look around and say, we struggled with these same silly problems when I was younger, when I was a kid? They might come in a different format, but the problem is the same. Do you ever think that, Blair? I'm going to pick on you. But we do, if you think about it, right? Some of the same issues. I listen to some of the political stuff out of Ottawa, and I, I, I go to bed laughing, not crying, not upset, laughing, thinking, we were arguing about that 50 years ago when I was learning stuff as a young teen. Mankind, the heart has not changed. So pride is not a modern problem by any stretch of the imagination. The essence of pride, the essence of this pride is insubordination, rooted in an inordinate self-estimation. The proud man rejects authority, whether from God or man, and arrogates or appropriates it to himself. Isn't that a great definition, great definition of pride? When we look around, it's insubordination. And it's rooted in this self-estimation of who we are as people. Well, look at me. Look what I can do. And as a proud person, we begin to reject authority around us, whether that is God or somebody in charge of us, and we appropriate the authority to ourself. Edom's pride rested in a sense of security and self-sufficiency. Given their geographical location, they thought, hey, we've just got the best of the best. And if you look through history, many nations are in the same boat. They think they've got it all, and they become very proud of what they are and who they are. The mountain ridges, the wadis, the desert below, and they became self-deceived. They deceived themselves by their own arrogancy. They become overconfident. We say that a lot today. Right? We talk about sports teams being overconfident. That's really the least problems. They're overconfident every year and they overestimate themselves. No, but we say that about people. 
We even probably say that about ourselves once in a while. I overestimated my abilities, and that really messed me up. I should know myself better. But Edom had overestimated themselves. Verse 4. Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came to you, if plunderers came to you by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If, oh, I think I said that twice. Sorry. I think I was supposed to change that to a different translation, but that's okay. So basically what it's saying there is this. Thieves and grape pickers. So somebody coming into your home or somebody going to pick stuff out of your field, they're at least going to leave you a pittance. The thief might be scared off and he doesn't take everything or he wants something and he only takes that and he leaves. And and somebody who's coming to steal your grapes or your apples or something from your field, they're only going to take a little bit because they're going to go, okay, i got enough to carry and they're going to take off. But that's not what's going to happen to Edom. That's what God's saying. He says, no, Edom. When the other nations come, you're going to be destroyed. They're not talking about leaving a little bit for them. They're talking about destruction. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you, driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So the concept of when you eat with somebody, there's fellowship. You think you're allies. You think you're friends, right? How many run off and eat with their enemies? Anybody? You're supposed to. That's what the Bible says. Come on. Um, but but we, we just, those we really don't like, we don't tend to eat with. But these people sat at the table. They, they talk about eating with them. They were your friends. You are their allies. Eat himself de- deception. They were not able to perceive that they were being duped, deceived by their own allies. Sadly, anybody who's been around the block once or twice can, can relate to this, no matter your age. And that's the betrayal of a close friend. Right? You think you have a confidence, somebody you can trust, and they betray trust. And that's difficult. And that's what it's talking about here. Edom, you thought you had these allies, these very close friends that you could confide in. You thought you had these people that would come to your defense. And in the meantime, they were just waiting for a time to stab you in the back. They were waiting for a time to come and plunder all your goods. And that's what they're talking about here. That you're, who you thought you were friends are going to turn on you and they're going to plunder you. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden and the understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Now, the question is sometimes when we read the Old Testament, what is hyperbolic 
Because that's part of literature and what's reality. And it's hard. I'll admit that. When you read through some of the Old Testament, some of the things that they talk about happening are difficult in our New Testament 2023 ears to hear. And we don't like it. So, hyperbolic literature is found in the Old Testament. But not all of it's hyperbolic. And again, it would take a lot to go through. That's something you're going to have to walk through. Because there are times where God told... And and this is just me postulating here. Okay? It's just my thoughts. There are times in the Old Testament where God tells them to destroy everybody. Do they? No, because they show up later. Those same tribes, people that they talked about destroying... You'll read later and go, wait a second, I thought God said to destroy them back there, and they didn't. So where the language is, or, or sometimes they don't destroy them, and those people that they were supposed to look after come back to haunt them later. So that's just me postulating. I wonder if sometimes it's in there for God, for us to look back and say, wow, God wanted them to carry out judgment, and God's judgment is righteous, Israel had a hard time doing it. And it just makes me think, wow, could I do all that? Could I have done what they've done? Or would I have been in the same boat? Because I'm man, and I'm not perfect. I'm not God. But if you read through the Old Testament, there are times where you see some hyperbolic language used, and sometimes you'll find tribes that they were supposed to take care of rise up, and just a few chapters later, they're there. And there's a discussion on what is hyperbolic, what is meant to sort of build with that literature and what's not. And that's not taking away by any stretch of the imaginations having a literal view of Scripture. It's just understanding how the literature is used in Scripture. Okay. Cross-reference that to Jeremiah 49.7. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? It's the concept that those ruling class and those people that were in charge of things, God was going to look after them. So Edom's crimes. So we do a shift here. So now we're going to talk about Edom's crimes. Why is Edom in for judgment? Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. So Esau and Jacob... Right? Everybody remember the story? Right? Okay, so the two brothers, the deception, the blessing, the, the Jacob taking off and then coming back, and the two brothers, and then, um, if you recall, the, the Jacob's coming and he splits his tribe up, or his people, his tribe, his servants into two parts, and then he takes, a, takes a, uh, an offering of all these camels and donkeys and everything to his brother, and, and then they make up again. Um, so e- that's who Edom is. And there's been hostilities throughout the year. So it's violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So you can read about Edom's host- hostility towards her, her relatives in, in Exodus. Exodus 15, 15. In Numbers 20, in Deuteronomy 2, and in Judges. Some of that is to do is when they were crossing over and going back to the promised land. And, and you'll see in there, if you, when you read through the Old Testament, Edom is always listed as one of their enemies causing problems. Verse 11. On that day you stood aloof. So 
kind of looking afar off, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So they just watched at a distance. They weren't going to help. Reminds me of the Good Samaritan, right? Everybody kind of goes around what's happening. Verse 12, but you do not, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to gut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So these were all the charges against Edom and what they had done. This is from the NLT. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction. When they were suffering such calamity, you should you should you not have seized you should not have seized their wealth. When they were suffering such calamity, you should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured their survivors and handed them over in their troubled time, in their terrible time of trouble. What an indictment. Not, not participating right down in the battlefield, but standing off aloof and watching what's happening and seeing people running from there and, and either cutting them down yourself or pushing them back into the fray of things and say, hey, we caught a few survivors. You guys just do what you want with them. And that was the indictment on Edom. So there are eight negatives. Uh, easy to read in the NIV and the NLT. They really bring them out. But uh, you should not have gloated that sense to, to look at what happened to them. Right? And, and some of these principles are things that we actually, principles we could learn for ourselves. We shouldn't be gloating at others' misfortunes. We shouldn't rejoice. When something happens to somebody else, it's not a time of... If, if, if it's a time of rejoicing, rejoice with them. But if it's a time of, of trouble or a time of sorrow, we, we meet them there where they're at. We shouldn't rejoice, even in our enemies, when they run, un, uh, under, uh, run into trouble. Boast spoken conceitedly they should not have marched through the gates. So after they had destroyed everything, the Edomites went in to scoop up some of the wealth, uh, nor looked down at them. And they did. They're like, ha ha, Israel's getting it. They deserve it. And it's something we have to watch, that we don't do that. I mean, I do hope that the Russia war in Ukraine gets settled. 
I hope Mr. Putin goes home with his troops. But we have to remember when we pray for the war that there are people being killed on both sides. And there are people losing family members. There are people that are going from now to eternity and it's a Christless eternity. And some of those soldiers that are fighting are fighting for their home country, yes. Who knows what other manipulation is going on, but there are some from Russia's side that are there as mercenaries, but there are others that are there because if they don't go, they'll end up in prison or killed back home. So we want to pray, and we don't want to look down at them. We don't want to gloat or or anything. Also, uh, they went and seized their wealth. That's why they marched through the gates. Uh, They should not have waited the crossroads. They should not have handed over the survivors. They should have provided for their brothers, their cousins. They should have provided for them. But no, poor Israelites, let's just send them back. And that's what they were doing. So this does, I already talked about it, this does translate, I think, to how we treat people and how we approach people. And there's some good lessons in the Old Testament talking about how we should treat and and, and not treat people. So there's some principles there, I think, that we need to pay attention to. So this leads us into the date. And the reason I want to lead us in the date, everybody tries to figure out exactly when this happened. So when did this happen? There are four, actually five options. I forgot to change that. So when was this invasion? Well, there, there are a few points in history that we can look at. Some believe that this refers to when Jerusalem by Shizkak, king of Egypt in 926 BC. Um, but there are some issue. Edom remained subject to Judah at this time. And the the description of plundering doesn't fit with the historical record of what happened in 926. So we don't think that that was the time when Israel was plundered and when Edom looked off from the side. Then there's this invasion of Jerusalem by the Philistines and the Arabians during the reign of Jehoram. That was in about 848-841 BC. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. Then there's another one. Um, provoked by King Amaziah and Joash of Israel when they invaded in 790 B.C. You can read about that in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The issue, the invaders were called strangers. Um, These wouldn't have been strangers that were invading Israel at the time. It would have been the north invading the south. Then there's Babylonian attacks uh, on Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Uh, The issue is Obadiah never mentions total destruction of Israel, nor does he name the the enemy, but a lot of the other prophets do. So there there are kind of two that we could settle. I guess I only had four. There are two we can settle on. One is B, the invasion of Jerusalem by the Philistines and the Arabians during the reign of Jehoram in 848-841 BC. And the reason this one is a possibility is in verse 20, they indicate this Phoenician city called Zarephath, and it's way to the west. It's not Babylon. So people say, we think maybe this is it, or it could be as late as the 586 B.C. when Babylon carried them out. Some people will go to that. So I I think it's either the Babylonian invasion or possibly this invasion. Um, We're not sure exactly um, I think I mislabeled that. But some conservative scholars, this is not an E-view, but it's just some conservative scholars, they kind of line up 50-50. 
half of them will vote for the B option, and the other half think it's 586. Uh, I lean a little bit more towards the B option and that the book was written a little earlier and that Jeremiah quotes from Obadiah and not Obadiah from Jeremiah. And I know that's long and confusing. But next time you go through the book of Obadiah and read some history, keep that in mind, please. So, the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Reminds us of Psalm 94. Because one of the issues was people, what we talked about this morning again, this concept of, okay, what's this mean the day of the Lord is near? Because we often talk about, well, Christ's return is near. And, and I've heard that since it's about this big and could learn to speak English. Day of the Lord is near. Christ's return is near. But again, we become very short-sighted. And we ought to remember, and I think these are some great verses, Psalm 94. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, or Second Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." So when we think about the day of judgment coming, uh, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations, this time that's coming, we can be thankful for it. We should be busy going about and preaching and sharing the word of God, the word of Christ with people. Because when, when that day comes, that's it. So in this case, relating back to them, they're like, oh, when's this going to happen? And, and they weren't thinking it was coming. Also with inside this verse, um, from your deeds shall return on your own head, it reminds us a little bit of the sowing and, sowing and reaping principle from Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If there's one, there's many principles we need to live to learn in life. But one of the big principles to learn in life is the fact that when we sow, how we treat people, what we do over here, it grows and it it eventually gives forth the fruit. And if what you've done over here is according to God's will and with goodness and and kindness and with truth and love, then the harvest you get over here is going to match what you planted over there. In this case, Edom had not sown love or truth, but treachery and deception. So when it came time for the crop to come in, what was it? Deception. They, they got what was coming to them in one sense. They had sowed it and how they treated their brother Israel and when it came due, they were getting exactly what they did back to themselves. They treated people with treachery. They received treachery. Verse 16. 
For as you have drunk on on my holy mountain, so all nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. The CSB does a good job with this. As you have drunk on your holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. So the nations eventually will drink the cup of wrath. There is a time of judgment to come. The NLT. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. So all those nations that thought they were so hot and mighty, God would look after them. And we look now, where they're all gone. And the only one from that region that we still call underneath the same name would be Egypt, isn't it? Egypt and Israel, but all the rest are gone. Um, I think Jordan is the area now where the, um, where the Edomites were, if I remember my geography correctly. From Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen through 29, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. You don't like to think about it. We Our churches today... And, and there's nothing wrong with it. We're so focused on love, 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 which is fine. We're supposed to love one another. We have said that over and over again. But there is a reality of a coming judgment for all of us. And it was quicker at times in the Old Testament, but there'll be a time where our country too will fall under judgment. From Revelations chapter 14, And another angel, a third angel, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Just as God was going to take care of Edom, One day this world would be made right. And one of the reasons we go to people and share the love of Jesus Christ is that there is a day when God's wrath will be poured out. There is a day where he reaches his limit and he says, look, I've given you all this time to come to me and you've refused. And for that, there'll be a day of judgment. So what happened to the Edomites in the end? Well, they were judged by God as the prophet said, would happen, both Obadiah and Jeremiah. The Edomites were conquered by the Nabatean uh, Arabs, perhaps as early as 500 BC. Not all the Edomites left the region of Edom when uh, the Nabatean Arabs took control of this area. Uh, those who did leave the land of Eden, they went to the area of southern Judah, the land on the western side of the Dead Sea. These became known as the Edomunes, if I'm saying that right. Pardon? Indumians, thank you. Um, Also mixed with the people who were already living in that area. So eventually around 500 BC, 
They were completely destroyed and sort of dispersed amongst the people around them. When the Edomians continued conflict with the Jewish people in the time of Maccabees, the Jewish people conquered them and assimilated them by force. F.F. Bruce in his book, uh, Israel and the Nations, talks about this conflict, the war between the Jewish people and the Edomians in that time of the Maccabees. And that's that period at the end of the Old Testament to the start of the New Testament. Matter of fact, about 100 years before Christ, there was one Jewish leader, John Hyrcanus. I'm terrible pronouncing names. Um, he went to the south and he warred against them. And he talks about them being the, a thorn in their side. And I think you could find that in um, both F.F. Um, F. Bruce's book. But I believe you'll find that um, Josephus writes about this also. So they eventually were taken care of. And the prophecy was fulfilled. Then we have lastly the restoration. Starting in verse 7. Uh, I guess that's 17. I did that wrong. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So Mount Zion is Jerusalem. This is the concept at the Lord's redemption. The Lord's redemption begins with a restored Israel. Now, is this starting to sound familiar? A restored Israel? Okay. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The mention of Jacob and Joseph, some scholars believe, is to single a, a, a reunited Israel, and, and it's well represented when the NLT translate it, they say the people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom a field of dry stubble. And then it goes back to the descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then verse 19. Those of the Negev, or Negev, as you might read in some translations, shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the hosts of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, so that's way over by Phoenicia on the coast. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negev or Negev. So Obadiah describes a time when all these territories are restored to Israel. And there are those that believe that began in 1948 with the establishment of Israel. They're beginning to piece the promised land Coming back together. Now, the issue with that is you have some, uh, how from Reformed background, Reformed theologians who would hold that when Abraham talked about the promised land, when we come to Hebrews, we're talking about a, a different promise. So they would say that it isn't going to be a fully restored Israel. Where did we talk about a fully restored Israel? When we talked about prophecy, right? that God would fully restore Israel, he still has a place for Israel in the history of this world. And that will come in the millennium. 
But Israel isn't completely done. God made a covenant with them and he's going to restore them and use them again. Or those that will come to something like Obadiah and they look at the end of Obadiah and they say, no, no, this isn't talking about the physical promised land, but rather this is a fulfillment that's not going to happen until the new heaven and the new earth. That this is a fulfillment of a a better, that Abraham said he was going to a better country. And that's not something on earth. Um, But for you and I, when we look at it, I would agree with John MacArthur that this restoration that's talked about in the end of Obadiah for Israel is pointing to the millennial kingdom. When God picks up the promise from which he gave in Genesis and says, hey, I still am dealing with Israel. I am not done with them. So while there is one people, the church is not a substitute for Israel, and Israel is not a substitute for the church. It's one people of faith, and God deals with us at different times. And come the millennial, God again is going to deal with Israel differently. And it'll be different then. And that's what the end of Obadiah is talking about, is that millennial. 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule at Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Very much sounds like the millennial kingdom, doesn't it? The ruling from Mount Zion and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And that is Obadiah. Obadiah is a rich book. I think there's many things in there for us. But tonight, just a couple things to remember. The fact that how people treat each other, that's part of that sowing and reaping principle. And, and, and the Edomites even though related to Jacob, even though related to the nation of Israel, sowed seeds of deception. They, they sowed seeds of arrogancy. And that all came home to roost, as the old saying goes, years later, when God had enough and those that they had eaten with, those who they thought were, were friends of theirs and allies, turned on them because they saw a chance where they could make Edom lower and themselves higher. It's a matter of power. And then eventually that happened, and that was all part of God's plan. And still coming at the back of of Obadiah is this ruling of a restoration of Israel, which I think tucks in nicely to the fact that we had just talked about the millennial kingdom and that God is not done with Israel yet. And I think Obadiah talks about that again, that God is going to deal with Israel. He's going to restore the nation of Israel. And in the millennial kingdom, after the rapture, which I think we talked about last week, right? So after the rapture, then God is going to wrap up everything in the millennial kingdom, then the great white throne of judgment, and then we'll be together in eternity. And it's even pointed to way back in Obadiah, our little post-it note from the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight. We thank you for your word. And Father, I pray for Forest Baptist Church. Father, as they go forward underneath new leadership and have you provided for them. Father, I pray that they'll continue to show his said and love to the Ukraine family fleeing from the war. We thank you for them. And, and, and Father, I pray for the, the many at Forest that struggle with loved ones that are not saved. Father, that you will keep reminding us to pray for our loved ones. 
and that it's never too late. And pray that you'll give them the, the power to uh, turn their lives towards you. And Father, I pray for each and every one here this morning as they step out with a new transition and, and step forward. Father, that you'll continue to each person here to reach this community with a gospel influence, whether it's through the community closet, whether it's through the Spanish outreach on on Saturday nights, whether it's Bob Morgan and Phil teaching the youth of the, uh, of the town, whether it's through the Sunday school or the kids club again in the fall, whether it's people who might be drawn to a worship service. Father, in, in, in our walking in the community and our working in the community, Father, that you might bless this church to share your love and that you might give them the privilege here to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, give them the strength to always offer forgiveness to one another. Give them the strength to show love to one another. Father, give them unity, peace. Give them shalom as they move forward. So we thank you for tonight. We thank you for just this time together in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.